Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. context of 2 Chronicles 34 is that we have been studying all of the kings of Judah through Chronicles. Chronicles pretty much ignores the northern kingdom. We've seen various kinds of lives, which are great mirrors of just different personalities and, and how they struggle with their faith and how they move forward through life. Um, you have, with a common theme in all of Chronicles, is the degree of obedience cor correlates with the degree of blessing. It's not that they are, they're loved by the Lord, they've been chosen by the Lord, they've been put on the throne by the Lord. The degree to which they obey the Lord is going to vary the degree of blessing that they get. And absolute disobedience to the Lord is actually a curse to the king. So we have Amon that just got assassinated after only two years, which is why Josiah is only eight years old when he takes the throne. So that's where we pick up tonight. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. So we get an overview of his reign. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, which makes him 16, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. So we see a, a depth uh, and width of idol worship that has very quickly spread around Judah again. Um, they love following after these idols. And, and, and again, it's really easy to dismiss that because we don't have quote-unquote idols today. But we have lots of other things that people pursue other than the Lord. Um, and those idols can uh, essentially fill different aspects of life. Power, lust, greed. Uh, desire for money, desire for prosperity, desire for better crops. Each of those idols is something that people put their trust in. And then they go to the idol and they make an agreement. I'll give you stuff and you give me these blessings that I want. So all of idol worship is kind of a form of self-worship. It's people just getting what they want from these very manipulatable gods. Verse 4, they broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence and in the incense altars which were above them, he cut down, and the wooden images, and the carved images, and the molded images, so wood, metal. He broke them in pieces. He made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed them. Um, he also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. So like Hezekiah, he starts at home and he's working his way out from Jerusalem. He also takes care of the priests, which according to the, the law is if you have the people that are doing the idol worship should be also destroyed with the idols that they worship or else they just start new idol worship or commission new idols. So he did the cities and so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim and Simeon as far as Naphtali in the far north and all around with axes. He's cutting down these idols. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images had been beaten into beaten the carved images into powder, he cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, and then he returned to Jerusalem. So he goes on this tour. Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, they go on tours and they conquer cities and raid. Judah goes on tours and destroys idols and comes home. 
And, and there's just a very different like agenda behind the movements of the Israelites here. With the Assyrians getting crippled by Hezekiah, Babylon is the new rising power in this period of time. And, and we very quickly move everything to Babylon here throughout the next three chapters. Assyria's got, not only do they not have an army after Hezekiah, but they have Scythians invading from the north, and they're washing through former Assyria, which means whatever conquest Syria had done on the northern kingdom is no longer influential. They don't have anything to support it. So you get these verses where Josiah is able to go out into the northern kingdom and get rid of idols. That's because the Assyrians are no longer there in force. There's, no, there's a power vacuum right now. Verse 4, they broke, cut down, broken pieces, and made dust. Verse 5, they burned, cleansed. Verse 6, with axes, broken, beaten, cut. It's very clear that they're using as many words and synonyms as they can for destruction. In every way, shape, or form, Josiah gets rid of idols everywhere he sees them. The problem with this is just getting rid of the objects of sin doesn't necessarily change the heart of the people. And that's the difference between Josiah and Hezekiah, really. Hezekiah did a work of leadership where hearts were actually changed. In Josiah's generation, that doesn't seem to be happening. So Josiah's approach to sin is basically there's no welcome and there's no place for overt sin in his kingdom. So this is kind of this idea of destroying sinful things, but he's also dealing with sinful people for those that embrace it. He does this for six years. And then this happens. In the 18th year of his reign, when he'd purged the land of the, and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Masiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Sounds a lot like Hezekiah. When they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God. Again, that system was established by Hezekiah, and there's actually money there for repairs. Hilkiah is actually Jeremiah's father. So just getting a sense of how these things connect. Josiah establishes oversight. He puts godly people in the right place, and these people are faithful to do God's work. And then, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin, and which they had brought back to Jerusalem. So what's going on with Josiah is everything's still working the way it should from the time of Hezekiah. Like the, the, the financial aspects of temple worship are in place. It's that people went after other things during that time. Verse 10, Then they put it in the hand of the foreman, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. They gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. So they hire people to do work on the temple. And that's Josiah, again, is doing this piece. Um, you know, again, thinking of this, just how does this relate to today? And I, I think as we build churches and as we build communities of people, God does expect humans to do the upkeep on what he's established. And that was true of the era of judges. It's true of the area of kings. It's true of the Mosaic era. It's true of Adam and Eve. He gave them something, and he expects humans to do the maintenance and upkeep of that something. And that really hasn't changed today, the nature of God in this. Um, God actually gives us salvation, and then he expects us to maintain purity after salvation. So he puts everything in the right place. He forgives sin. He sets us up, and then he expects us to do something with that and to work with that. So they gave it to the craftsmen and the builders to buy hewn stone and timber for the beams and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. And the men did the work faithfully 
and their overseers were Jehath and Obadiah of the Levites and the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam and the sons of the Kohathites to supervise. So Levites are in charge of all this. Others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful with instruments and music. So I don't know why the music thing's thrown in there other than this. David had instituted this as part of temple worship. But it seems to be in the context of doing this craftsman's work on the temple. So when it says the men did the work faithfully, that's the, the use of the word faithfully there is not necessarily a belief like the Hebrew word pistos or the Greek word, but it is the day-to-day -day carrying out of a behavior. The workmen worked day after day, faithfully doing their job. They were paid to do a job, they do a job. And God actually looks at that as an honorable thing. And I, you know, if nothing else, we can pull that out of the end of Chronicles is God appreciates faithful workers that do their job, they do it the right way, and they do it without complaining. Um, and, and at some level, this little extra note of others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful with instruments of music, seems to imply that maybe they're like working to tunes. Like, and, it, and isn't it easier to do manual labor and stonework and timber work and cutting and all of this sort of thing with some music in the background? And this idea of just music being provided for the work that's being done seems to be just a, a sweet, uniquely Israeli kind of thing to do. Verse 13, um, they were over the burden bearers and were, were overseers of all who did, any kind, did work in any kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes, officers, and gatekeepers. So all these different categories of work, including David's musical additions, and Je Josiah is in every way doing everything that's prescribed that should be done. What he's not necessarily doing is convincing the Judeans to follow the Lord. So where Hezekiah set an example and then people followed, Josiah sets an example and the people don't seem to follow him. And so there's something going on in the country where they both do it right, they both do it prescribed, but some people get lots of results and some people don't. And Jesus teaches like, we can do the same work, but some people are going to bear the fruit of multiples of 10 and other people are going to see multiples of 100 and others are going to see multiples of 1,000. But the idea is we all do the work and we do what we've been told to do. So within the context of this faithful work, they find the word. And I just like this image too. Like they go about doing the business of what God told them to do and then suddenly the word shows up in their hands again. And what do we mean by that? Verse 14, now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses, which means everything that Josiah is doing that's prescribed correctly, it's word of mouth. It's the priest telling him what God expects, but to actually have the word of God. Here's another way to read verse 14. They found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Like this is the script that Moses wrote on, which is hard to think because it's hundreds of years on a very biodegradable piece of parchment or even animal skin. So the idea that this could be the actual writing of Moses, that would be a miraculous thing if that's the case. I, I you know, th that would normally be dust after so many years. Um, or it's simply a faithfully transcribed scribing of the actual book of the law and it's handed to, or Hilkiah digs it out and he finds it and it's uh, given by Moses in the written form. Uh, so, then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, the word answered there implies Hilkiah actually read the book of the law for himself. 
He's not trusting word of mouth anymore. And word of the mouth so far in the chapter has been pretty faithful to what the text says. So word of mouth has been sufficient, but not the best option. The best option is to just read the word for yourself. Then Hilkiah answered, he read the word and then had a response to it. And he said, Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. This is what's cool. When people know the Bible and they read the Bible, they tend to share the Bible. And this is just, at some level, this is how I think God moves through his word. We read it, we fall in love with it, and then we hand it off to other people and say, read it, you'll fall in love with it. So he gives the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king, bringing the king word saying, all that was commanded by commanded to your servants, they are doing. We're doing all the work you told us to do. And they've gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. We're doing everything you commanded. Then, verse 18, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. He reads the Torah, Deuteronomy at the least. Hilkiah gives it to him. Shaphan carries it to the king. We see the word of God starts to spread. They start doing the work of God, and then the word of God starts to take root. And again, at this period of time, they don't have television. They don't, you know, they actually had time to read things, apparently, because Shaphan reads the entire thing. Like, we're kind of, like, we do an hour or two, and we're getting tired of listening. These guys must have been doing a bench fest to get through that much text that quick. Even just the Torah took us, what, five years to get through it? So the fact that they just read it in one sitting, this would take a bit to read this. And Shaphan read it. The word read there implies that he shared it, he taught it, they walked through it, and they understood what it said. He taught it to them. So then you get the printing press. Um, they, the scribe Shaphan has it, reads it to the king, uh, and gives it out. And this public reading is the way to hear God's word prior to modern technology. Well, prior to the printing press, prior to a copy machine, prior to everybody having a Bible in their hand. You had to listen to people read it for thousands of years. And perhaps that's how God's word was meant to be taught. I know for me, when I listen to someone teaching the God, God's word, when I have the book in front of me, it seems to be more powerful than when I just try to read it on my own. And sometimes I love to just read it on my own, especially the Psalms and poetic books. But when I'm really trying to understand what something means and what it says, I like to hear someone who's gone through the Bible teach it. And I like to listen to it that way. So that's how the king receives it, Josiah. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. And this is the effect of the word of God. It's not just a book, it's a mirror. If you look at what the Bible says and you believe that it's God's word, then it tells you something about how you can live and you spot things that would make you grieve because you realize I haven't been doing what the book says to do. And that's Josiah's response. And again, so far in this chapter, Josiah, he's done everything right, right? He's done tons of good things, but yet he recognizes, he's convicted by that when we see things through God's eyes, it just changes everything. And even though he's done all these good works, they're simply not enough. The other image of tearing clothes is one of grief or humbling yourself or becoming humble before God. This is also the effect of the Word of God that it has on people. Um, it causes us to repent because first it causes us to be humble. We realize what we're not able to do and what we're not capable of, and then the Word of God has an impact. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, 
Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, Adan, the son of Milcah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Azaiah, the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and those who are left in Israel and Judah. So the word God gets read. It gets handed to Shaphan. Shaphan reads it to the king. The king recruits a number of people and, and expects them to react to what the word says. Concerning the words of this book that is found, for a great wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. A couple thoughts on that. Having no northern kingdom, Josiah sees the promises of God and that they're worthy of the exact same things that the northern kingdom has already been given. So when he says the northern kingdom has lost their sovereignty and been dis distributed by Assyria all over the way, they've been eradicated. Reading of the word brings conviction brings an inquiry of God, and it all leads to revival. And so Josiah reads the word, he understands the word, and then he passes the word along, but he recognizes part of what the word of God says is that they've sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. And so there has to be a reaction to this. I love another thought. Josiah's reaction is to draw closer to God under conviction. He doesn't run away from God because he's convicted. He goes closer to God because he's convicted. And another thought is, according to all that is written in the book, in verse 21, if we do part of what's written in the book, or we take the word of God and we only read portions of it or small amounts of it, we get an understanding of it that's not robust and deep and thick. We, we can understand one verse, but if we understand it out of context, we might act in a way that's not in accordance with the whole teaching of the word of God. So which is why we teach the entirety of the book, not just parts of it or elements of it. So this idea of going and inquiring, respecting the role of the king and the priest, Josiah reacts to this by actually using the system that God set up. Under the law, he's supposed to ask the priest to do inquiries of the Lord. So if he wants to talk to God, God can talk to kings if he wants to, and he does, and he sends prophets to talk to kings. But if kings want to talk to God, they're supposed to work with the priest to do that. So Josiah's doing what God prescribes about how a king should approach the Lord. Verse 22. So Hilkiah and those that the king had appointed went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hashra, keeper of the wardrobe. And she dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they spoke to her of that effect. What's interesting about Huldah is that she is the wife of the keeper of the wardrobe at the end of the day. This is what they point out about her. They don't point out, A, they, there is nothing here about male-female. This is not a, a discussion on gender equity. It really isn't. What it's a discussion of is that God is using a spark of light that's working in the wardrobe department. And, he's used, and that spark of light trumps what the entire priesthood has been doing that should have been maintaining the word of God and teaching the word of God, but she's keeping the word of God. And they spoke to her to that effect. They bring this situation to her and they recognize her as somebody who knows God's word and is capable of hearing from God. And in, in this sense, the, it doesn't matter who someone is or where they work or what they're doing. If they know God and they respect God and they listen to God, there is a, an honor or respect that comes from that. So there's other prophets that are working at this time. We know Jeremiah is active. We know there's a few other prophets, but Huldah is the one that's nearby. She's respected. She's over there in the second quarter, as the author points out. She's right in town. 
And so this godly wardrobe keeper's wife is regarded to have more wisdom than the high priest of the temple does. And I think that's kind of amazing. And, and the other thing is she actually has that reputation. She's the one person that just sticks to God's word. And everybody kind of knows it because they know to go to her in the first place. And then she answered them saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel. So she actually is speaking as though God has talked to her directly. She's claiming the role of prophet. Uh, obviously, there's no gender issues here. Her being a female does not stop her from being a prophet. She's able to hear from God and she's able to represent what God says. Uh, and, the, and there's literally no discourse on that in these verses. Tell the man who you sent to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book, we know they're in Deuteronomy then, or Numbers, which they have read before the king of Judah, because they've forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. So the answer is, Jerusalem's going to go. It's going to be destroyed. That's what's coming. It confirms, it confirms the worst of Josiah's expectations. Dang, we're actually going to have to pay a price here. They've broken the covenant. They went after other idols. You can tear all the other idols down and turn them to dust, but if the hearts haven't changed, there's a major issue in the country. So everything that's written in the book, God keeps his word. He keeps it to the letter, whether or not we've read it. And, 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 and his defense is, I wrote it. I put it in your hands. That was his job to carry out his end of it. He's faithful to his promises. Humans are not. And so we get this dynamic that is pretty consistent. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. So a pronouncement of judgment followed by a pronouncement of hope. And this is, again, how God operates. Yes, I'm going to bring judgment, but that's not the end of the story. So here's the second thing to say to Josiah, because God recognizes Josiah is actually trying to honor him. He has a tender heart towards God. God sees that, he recognizes it, so he says this, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem, but, verse 26, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you've heard, the, the, the Bible, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. I just... This to me is like the balm of my soul. I love this. If we as human beings are tender-hearted towards God and we're responsive to the word when we hear it, God actually recognizes that. And he holds that in our favor. When we are judged, our response to the word of God is part of what defines God's judgment towards us. So if that's true, the only thing I can do that would push God away is to reject what he says in his word or through the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit becomes the only thing that God won't forgive because it's the only thing where we reject the idea of forgiveness. If we don't humble ourselves and we don't hear his words and respond to them, there's, then we aren't getting forgiven because we haven't asked for it. We don't think we need it. That pride of of. of blasphemy is the only thing that God's like, boy, that's the only thing that's going to keep you away from me. So no matter what Josiah did or the people of Israel did, they're going to get some mercy here. The word tender in the Hebrew is rakak. It means to soften, to be changeable, and to be moldable. 
if God, so nobody's born a saint. We're all born sinners. So at some point to respond to God's word and to hold a God's prophet, prophetess, um, we, have to, we have to be able to hear what God says and actually respond to it. That's the only thing God really expects of us in our hearts. To humble ourselves. Often God has to be the one that humbles us. But Josiah willingly hears God's word alone and he humbles himself because of it. Jesus tells the story of Abraham and Lazarus in, in Sheol or Hades. You know, Lazarus uh, is in the bosom of, of Abraham and the rich man's like, can you just go tell my brothers what's going to happen and, and how we're going to be judged? And, and Abraham just says, look, you had the word and that you had the prophets, you had everything you needed to make a decision and you didn't make it. And even if somebody rises from the dead, you're still not going to make that decision. And so this idea of humbling ourselves is has to happen willingly and it happens as a response to God's word, God's Holy Spirit, and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If those things don't cause you to humble your heart, nothing will. And that's the idea. God shows mercy not because he has to, because what's just is to punish and to punish right now. But he does show mercy because he looks at Josiah, who is at this point the shepherd of, of God's people in Judah, and he says this, verse 28, Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. And what a beautiful thought. Like, if you are tender-hearted towards God, there is a wrath that you simply won't experience. It'll be, it, he'll just pass on you. And he's going to do that. What's commendable about Josiah is that he still works on the things of God even after he knows it's not going to do any good. So I think this is similar to how we respond to a world that is going astray. We still faithfully do what we've been told to do. We still persist because even though we know the world is doomed, it honors God to persist in the things of holiness. So we don't see the work of God in its completion during our lifetime, but we serve all the same. So Josiah does that. He just keeps working on true worship in Israel, trying to save as many souls as he can under this, this character of God. Verse 29, Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. Again, the word of God is spreading. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. I read it, now I'm going to read it to you. And again, this is how the word of God works. We read it, we have it taught to us, and then suddenly as the years go by, we realize God gives us opportunities to teach it to other people too. So we spread the word even more. And in response to knowing that God is going to judge, judge Josiah has the right response. He, his response is to teach the word of God to people. World is going to, to garbage? Well, okay, we're going to just study the word of God. And that's what we do every Sunday as Christians. And, he, and, and hopefully every day of the week we go there ourselves. He read, it was simple, it was not unique to priests, that priests aren't the only one that teach the word of God. In this case, there's no rule that says that, that limits anyone from teaching the word of God. If you have it and you're able to read it, then you're able to teach it. So after reading it and hearing it, he tends to himself, he asks for a decision from others, and he moves forward. And this is kind of the prescription of how this works. Then the king stood in his place, he tends to himself. And he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, 
and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Again, this is a passage that has a lot to do with the word of God and the impact it has. This is what we would call a prayer of salvation. He makes a covenant. God, I'm going to follow what your book says for the rest of my life, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to resolve to that. I'll keep your commandments. The testimonies would be the, the histories that have already been collected, the statutes that are there. There's going to be some books of wisdom like Proverbs that he has access to at this point. The commandments are going to be clearly the Torah and the law. Um, and he's going to do as it is written in this book. So living as God prescribes, not according to traditions or the culture that Josiah found himself in, but simply going back to the book and doing what God's already put in clear writing for them to do. And then he asks the people around him to make a choice. So he tends to himself and he makes a covenant and then he spreads or shares or evangelizes to everybody around him. He made all who were present and, the, and he can make all who are present do things because he's the king. This is the dominion God's given him. He actually has authority. So at least in this little area God's given me authority of, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Well, for a king, the house is all of Jerusalem. So he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. What we don't know is if they made a covenant themselves. They did according to the covenant. It doesn't say that they made a covenant. So they're going to be obedient to Josiah, but we're going to see quickly that that doesn't last very long when Josiah is gone. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel. When Hezekiah's revival happened, remember the people left and they tore down all the idols. But in this case, it's Josiah doing all of that. And, all, and he made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers, all his days is the key thing. Soon as he's gone, the faithfulness goes away because it wasn't them. This is a good, like, again, this is one of the things that we tell parents. The goal of parenting isn't to force your kids to follow the Lord because the harder you press down your thumb, the more they're going to squirt out from underneath it. The goal of parenting is to lead in such a way that your kids want to follow the same God that you follow because they see the impact of following that God. This is the difference between Josiah and Hezekiah. Um, it has a lasting impact, but that lasting impact is limited by the fact that Josiah has to be there. Woe to families where the matriarch or the patriarch is a God-serving person, but everyone else hasn't made heart decisions. And as soon as that God-fearing person falters or fails or dies, then you see families just disintegrate when it comes to their walk of faith. So this is kind of Josiah. So he keeps the Passover. So we're going to see more good things that he does. And this is like Hezekiah too. It's very reflective of Hezekiah. Keeping all of these feasts is a big deal. Now Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. They slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. Hezekiah did this on the fly. Like it was a quick thing. Like let's just do this. And because of that, he had to do it on the second month because they needed more time to prepare. But Josiah's got everything organized and planned out. They're going to do it as prescribed, even better than Hezekiah did. Verse 2, and he set priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. And then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel. So now Josiah is not the only one teaching the word of God. Now he's got Levites teaching the word of God. Who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders, 
Now serve the Lord your God and his people, his people Israel. Um, other sources, um, the idea here was that when they started to desecrate the temple, the priests actually brought the ark out of there so the ark wasn't in the presence of those desiccations. So as Josiah has cleaned those things out, he's telling them to put the ark back where it should be at the middle or at the heart of Israel. So again, he's commanding, put God's word back at the heart because what's inside that ark is the, the law, the commandments of Moses. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son, and stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the fathers, houses of your brethren and the lay people, according to the division of the fathers, houses, Levites. Again, there's a lot of words to say they're doing everything as they should. So the slaughter of the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves and prepare them for your brethren that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. We're going to do what this book says to the letter. Not Josiah's word, but God's word becomes the map for action, practice, and worship. So they're going to do it. Then Josiah gave the lay people lambs, young, young goats from the flock. I love that Josiah, this is a lot like Hezekiah, he's not expecting people to come out and cough up up front. He starts by just giving them what they need to do their sacrifices. So again, the worship of God shouldn't be looking for a handout. It shouldn't be a money-making enterprise. It should be a sacrificial enterprise. And when that's done right and people's hearts changes, what you need to do to worship is always there. So Josiah provides the lambs and the young goats from the flock, all four Passover offerings for all who were present. He takes the first round. The number of 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle, these were from the king's possessions. It's very important. He doesn't ask people to commit up front. And his leaders gave willingly to the people. So other people followed the example. The same way the word of God spreads, so did good works. Right? They read the word of God, they humble themselves to the word of God, they start to do the word of God, and then they make sacrifices for God's work and God's thing. And then as he's doing that, the leaders in verse 8 follow suit. So they give willingly to the people, to the priests and to the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, Jehel, the rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flock, 300 cattle. Also, Conaniah, his brothers, Shemaiah, Nethanel and Hashabiah and Jehil and Josabad, chief of the Levites. They gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. I read this and at the same time we're reading Luke dealing with the Pharisees and it kind of broke my heart. They read the word of God and they hear from God's word and there's a change of action that turns. There's a repentance and a holiness and the priests just get on board with Josiah. But when Jesus shows up, they don't get on board at all. But wouldn't it have been a different story if when Jesus came and explained the fulfillment of all the prophecies, if all of the priesthood just got on board and, did, and gave up their, their money and their fancy robes and everything they needed just to serve and bless the people? And if those Pharisees just became what they were meant to be? But here in 2 Chronicles 35, we see what they were meant to be. They were supposed to be supporting the king. So when Jesus the king shows up and they don't support him, that had to just be heartbreaking for God because he's seen periods in history where the priesthood does step up and do exactly what they're supposed to be doing. So part of this revival is leadership unto sacrificial offerings, people giving of themselves. 
There's a great generosity, a great willingness, and a great joy in doing so. The writer points out how they willingly do this stuff. Nobody's twisting their arm. They just see the need and they do it. So the service was prepared, verse 10. And the priests stood in their places and the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command. I can't help but just seeing them all lined up, standing like little tape marks on the floor. Um, but in their places doesn't mean that. It means they're doing what God's called them to do. And they slaughtered the Passover offerings and the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands while the Levites skinned the animals. Then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the fathers' houses and to the lay people to offer to the Lord as it is written. There it is again, at the king's command, as it is written, according to the ordinance in the book of Moses. And they did so with the cattle. And they roasted the Passover offerings with fire according to the ordinance. But the other holy offerings they boiled in pots and cauldrons and pans and divided them quickly among the lay people. Remember Aaron's sons would go out to those pots and made special hooks so they would get more meat when they dipped into the pots. We don't get any record of um, scuzzy priests here because the priests are sharing in the first place. So they're not out taking, they're actually giving. And the focus is all the lay people. Everybody who shows up to the feast gets blessed. The lay people can just come and they don't have to give everything because there's a huge party and a huge feast and the people with resources have provided everything for the feast. All the lay people need to do is show up. And how is that different from the church today? Like this is God's plan. This is how God meant for it to be. If you're willing to show up, we're willing to bless you. And that's the heart of God's people or should always be the heart of God's people. I just love, at the end of Chronicles, they're about to destroy the southern kingdom here. But we get these wonderful images of what it's supposed to look like right here at the end. So they sprinkle the blood. The idea is the Passover blood covers the sin and it purifies and it consecrates. And when Jesus' blood is then sprinkled all over Jerusalem, the idea is that sprinkling of the sacrificial lamb is what covers our sin and what purifies and consecrates us. Burnt offerings are given for the people. Each household is blessed by the offering. That's why the number of offerings is less than the population of the people. And they had big families. So one cattle might service 30 or 40 people that live in a household. And this idea that one sacrifice can cover the sins of 30 or 40 people is called the, uh, uh, the idea of propitiation. That the payment for sin has been made and it's made household by household, not by individuals. This is a, an interesting idea. Also, they roasted the Passover offerings. The offering goes through the fire, goes through the wrath of God, and it's what's left after it goes through the roasting. So the people are served, the priests are served, the sacrifices go through their trials, and they come out and they bless the people on the other end. And part of the guilt of the Pharisees here is that they serve themselves before they serve the people. And again, you just see that contrast as we get to the end of the histories or the end of this era of history. These priests serve the people first. And I love that. Verse 14 starts with afterward. They don't take care of themselves until they've taken care of others. What kind of servant would not take care of their master before they take care of themselves? Or take care of their master first and then you take care of themselves. And that's how we are toward, that's our disposition towards the Lord. We take care of our duty for God first and then we take care of the duties for ourselves. Then afterwards, they prepared the portions for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings until and fat until night. They're going all day doing this. 
You ever work at a job where you can't get a break? And you're going 14, 20 hours and you just can't get away from the work? So this is wonderful. They see who's doing the work and therefore the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. So some people in the priesthood actually take care of the priests that are doing the work. And they can see these guys are pounding it. So they're just coming up saying, here's a plate of food. You don't even need to go get it. And there's just this generosity and this spirit of taking care of one another, taking care of the people first, taking care of the people doing the work. Uh, the, the work of Aaron, this is butcher work. You're taking care of cattle and lambs and goats and all this. That butchering work is tough work. It's hot and it's cold and you your muscles get sore because you're moving pounds around whenever you're chopping and pounding those things. Uh, it's exhausting work. And the Levites just take care of the, the sons of Aaron, different wings of the Levitical priesthood. In verse 15, and the singers, the sons of Asaph, man, they're in their places, according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, the king's seer, all these different divisions, they're singing songs the whole time. They're going to whistle while they work. They're little dwarfs. And they're just out there doing, doing the work of God. And what a blessing, what a feast. Thousands of, of, of animals getting feasted on. They enjoy the blessings and there's some people working to make that happen and they work all day and then they work until the night. And sometimes if we want to see God's work be done and the feasts happen and this joy happen, somebody has to put the whole thing on. And there's an appreciation from people in the house of God where when we see the people that are helping to make those great events happen so that we can fellowship and enjoy time with family and have fun, we say thank you to those people that are doing all the work. Sometimes those people are doing the work to where they don't even get away to enjoy it themselves. But they're called to it and they're okay with it. So there's a willingness that goes with that too. So they do this according to the commandment of Moses. Here we see the commandment of David in verse 15. That's because David added music to the mix. The law of Moses, Moses explains the need for it. David expresses the thanks for it all. And you got those two pieces of the covenant that come through. Moses is the covenant of the judges. David is the covenant of the kings. And when you put them together, you've got this expression of worship that really is just a big party. Also, the gatekeepers were at each gate. They don't abandon security here. They did not have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them too. So you had people putting meals on plates, bringing it out to the people that were serving all over the event, and, and the gatekeepers are like your ushers, your security guards. And they're making sure that those security guards get fed too. They get taken care of um, because thanks for watching the gates and thanks for making sure this is a safe event and everything's going well. So they're, they're, the security is kept up. They don't let their guard down while they do these events. Obviously, it's a, a harsh world that they live in, so they're not foolish about that. But they also take care of the people that are doing the work. And I think that's why it's really godly for us to look at the people that keep order in our society and say thank you. And so we say thank you to police officers and fire people and um, security guards and people that serve in the military because we're saying thank you for being a gatekeeper. And the people provide for the gatekeepers too. Verse 16, so all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer the burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. So Josiah is like, we're going to do it the right way. We just got a long list of all these different roles that people play. Everybody serves the body, but they do it in different ways, different gifts. And the children of Israel who were present to keep the Passover at that time 
and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and Levites. You're saying, well, Hezekiah held the Passover feast. And David and Solomon kept the Passover feast. The point here is this was way bigger than anything that they had done in the past. And it was. 30,000 animals is, is, is a large number of animals. With the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the implication there is it's not just the degree to which they kept the Passover the right way, but the number of people who showed up. Just a massive amount. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. Hezekiah kept it, but had half the offerings that Josiah did. The priests do all the work. In this case, they, they've read the word and they're doing it the way that it should be done. Revival started with one guy finding the word of God, passing it to one other guy, who then read it aloud to one other guy, who then brought in their whole cabinet and said, you're all going to read this word with us. And then he sent those people out and they started teaching all over the place. And what started with one person grew into something very, very large because God was allowing the word of God to get spread. And when the word of God gets spread, so do the feasts and the joy and the keeping of God's festivals to actually enjoy life the way God had set it up to be enjoyed. This is what Josiah does right. In verse 20, it switches to what he did wrong, right? Here's what he missed the ball. So he did those things all good. But after this, after all this, verse 20, in other words, kind of a hinge statement, after everything he did right, when Josiah prepared the temple, Necho, the king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish with, by the Euphrates. Carchemish by the Euphrates is a early term used for the rise of the Babylonian Empire. So the Assyrians have fallen. They, Babylon is one of the capital cities of the Assyrian Empire. It's got a lot of the Assyrian generals there, and it, and it becomes the center of power because the Scythians are attacking from the north. So historically, this is an accurate way to phrase it. It's not the emperor of Babylon yet because Babylon's not the empire. It's still technically the Assyrians, but they don't even use the term. They just use Carchemish by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him saying, the, the Necho sent messengers to Josiah saying, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come out against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. This is a really interesting thing. In this case, like Necho's actually claiming that Josiah doesn't have to go to battle. So why is Josiah even getting into it? You ever see two people get into an argument and you want to stick your nose in the middle of it? I've learned this one the hard way. Don't. Don't jump in. If two people are going to start attacking and fighting each other, that's not necessarily your business unless God tells you it's your business. So there's this battle with the emerging Babylon off the Euphrates and Egypt and this growing empire. They're fighting for the, the power vacuum. And frankly, if they fight each other and kill each other, that reduces the risk to Judah. This is a good thing if their enemies go at each other. So for some reason, and maybe this is just a weird idea of like, I want to go out to battle to find glory or to earn my name in the history books or to be a great general. Um, but Nico here claims that God has been guiding him. He's speaking the language of Judah. Hey, God told me to go wear down the Babylonians. So this is a really interesting example. 
There's no reason for Josiah to doubt what the writer has put forth. If Nico's saying that God is telling him, uh, Egypt's likely not hearing from Yahweh here. The word in the Hebrew for God is Elohim, which is a plural word for gods, right? So I've heard from gods this day. Um, but in it, it, the other sense, like he's using it like it's a singular thing. So for Elohim commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with Elohim. So again, who is with me is a singular word in that sense. So he's using the word gods as the Judeans use it when they talk about Yahweh. But he doesn't actually use the name of Yahweh. That said, Josiah has not heard from Yahweh that he should go to battle. Nevertheless, verse 22 Josiah would not turn his face from him, but he disguised himself so that he might fight with him. And he did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. So Josiah doesn't consult God. He has no business getting involved. He could have easily stayed out of this. It should have at least given him pause to consult, pray, and go to the priests. Because he got the word of God. Remember, he went to the priests. He saw hold of the prophetess. He knows how to consult with the prophets and with the priests, but he doesn't choose to do that here. So we see a man that has a heart for God in service, but he doesn't have a heart for God in his day-to-day -day life. So on Sundays, he's the most religious guy in the world, but on, when it comes time to do the civic business of being a king, he doesn't even bother to ask God for help in that. And he splits the two. And again, each of these kings is a character type. I'll follow on Sunday, but every other day of the week, I'm just going to do it my way. So there's a tough ending for a fairly good man here. And the end comes in the Valley of Megiddo. Ultimately, this is where we get the word Armageddon. It's the, the Valley of Megiddo uh, where ultimately the final war is going to be fought. And ultimately, this is the final war of the kingdom of Judah. Um, they don't have another battle where they, they're sovereign over their army. The archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. And his servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in a second chariot that he had and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and he was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. You know, what's interesting is if Josiah lived longer, the wrath of God would have been delayed longer. So his disobedience is actually something that will shorten the life of Judah. Jeremiah, the prophet, also lamented for Josiah. If you want to read that, we have... How many chapters are in Jeremiah? Lots. It's a big book. And the lamentations of Jeremiah are well known. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women of Judah speak of Josiah in their lamentations. Uh, so this is well recorded in other places in the Bible. They made it a custom in Israel. And indeed, they're written in the laments. You know, in verses 25, like we get a very like, the writer of Chronicles is trying to tell us like it is well known how Josiah screwed up here. We can rebuild the walls of the city. This is Ezra and Nehemiah talking to the people after Babylon. We can rebuild Jerusalem, but if we don't follow the Lord and seek his counsel in things of state too, we will fall again. We'll do it the wrong way. So Satan's not going to get Israel in that way. He'll use different methods. But this idea that Josiah, it, it's a lamentation is something to mourn over. It's a great tragedy. It's something worthy of being lamented. Um, and the fact that it's written well and the writer points out for us to go read those other books, like go read Jeremiah, see what a tragedy this was. It should be a great sadness to us that a good man like Josiah screwed it up.
He read the word. He knew the word. He knew the full counsel of God, yet he's not willing to apply it in his day-to-day life. But he does everything right when it comes to his worship practice. So he was buried. He's buried before Judah falls. God keeps his promise. That fulfills the prophetic word of Huldah. And then we make this a custom. Instead of forgetting the mistakes of Josiah, instead of just not studying Josiah, we're supposed to remember Josiah. Remember this is one of the great failings of one of the great kings. To only serve God on Sundays and not live accordingly is a great mistake. It's a great error. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness. He's a good guy. According to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So we're given another reference. Go read the book of Kings and study this guy. He's the last good king. He's not perfect, but overall he's good. He did a lot of what God asked and he failed in this one thing. Um, but ultimately God's going to move forward with judgment. Maybe Josiah's judgment was uh, impaired because God was ready to move on. Uh, and then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. That's a short reign. Barely even worth knowing this guy's name. Now the king of Egypt disposed him, deposed him at Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and gold. So when Josiah took the army out of Jerusalem, they have nothing left to defend themselves with. Egypt then turns around and says, you didn't listen to us. You involved yourself in a battle you didn't need to get into. Now we're going to demand tribute from you. You just became one of our territories. So Egypt grows. Judah loses its sovereignty. Then the king of, Now what's interesting here is Assyria came in violently. Egypt takes them over and actually puts a puppet king on the throne and just collects taxes from Judah. This should have been a big warning for them. Right? This should have been a step that got them to repent or draw closer to God. So Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother, Eliakim, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, carried him off to Egypt. So he loses, he's not kept in the land. Fighting the world backfires on Judah. It only takes three months for the world to turn around and attack them. And I think Israel's been learning this lesson through all of human history. There's only so much of a degree to which they're able to work with the nations around them. And then you see that they get backstabbed on a regular basis. They intervene first by determining the leadership. They replace and they place claiming sovereignty over Judah. So they lose their sovereignty or their ability to rule themselves. And then Egypt determines what the name of the king is going to be. They start to dictate to Judah what they can do. So the people make Jehoahaz king. Jehoahaz is not the eldest son of Josiah. So it's a, demo, a democratic election of sorts. And it's not necessarily the right person to put there because he's an evil king. Jehoahaz, the word there is Jehovah seizes or Jehovah takes. It's kind of ironic that gets, he gets seized and he gets taken away. Um, Jehoahaz is not included in Matthew's genealogy. So by tradition, the Jews ignore this guy like he's not legit um, so god doesn't recognize the people's choice for the kingship he's removed quickly after doing evil second kings 23 and then eliakim gets put on the throne who matthew does recognize eliakim means god raises up god establishes or who god has set um, and i'm thinking uh, neko of egypt thinks that's an offensive name like he doesn't want to say 
that this person that's sitting on the throne is someone that God raises up, because that's the word Elohim that he just used for his gods. So he changes his name to Jehovah raises up, which is kind of, you could read that as a mockery. Egypt, everybody knows he's a puppet king, and Egypt really makes a mockery of the name Jehovah when he does that, using it because everybody knows Nico put him on the throne, not Jehovah. So, or, or even worse, Nico's claiming that he's Jehovah. He is God with us. And we know from Egyptian archaeology and history, Egyptian pharaohs and kings did consider themselves to be gods. And so to claim that name is a, an utter blasphemy. Um, and they, they carry him off to Egypt. Jehoaz, therefore, again, the way Matthew reads this is he just doesn't matter. He's been consumed by the world. Uh, Judah becomes a vassal of Egypt. Uh, Eliakim or Jehoiakim is put on the throne and he was 25 years old when he became king verse 5 and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God uh, he's a tax collector for Egypt and this is part of why tax collectors get such a bad name with the Jewish people um, tax collectors uh, or people serving an a overruling empire are consistently evil in the word of God they're, they're people that don't necessarily stand for the word Jeremiah explains in detail his evils. Um, and, and one of the evils in the book of Jeremiah of Jehoiakim is he actually burns the Bible. Probably the same text that Josiah had found. And he lights it on fire. Luckily, there are scribes and more copies at this time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him. He bound him in bronze and fetters and carried him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon, some of, not all of, and put them in his temple at Babylon. That's a nice piece. I'll take it. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did, and what was found against him, indeed they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So we have Jehoahaz, ignored by Matthew, taken away by the world. He's a hostage. We have Jehoiakim, is bound in bronze by the world, and he becomes a prisoner. The world doesn't treat these kings very well. In fact, the end result of trying to make friends with the world is to be a hostage or a prisoner to it. And if you think of this in terms of spiritual elements like sin, trying to make buddies with sin makes you a hostage or worse, a prisoner of it. And there's no getting out. The bronze there is, again, an image of earthly um, sin, defilement, um, humans. Egypt's campaign goes to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar beats him. So this is the first mention of Nebuchadnezzar here in this book. Uh, he is a rising force. Nebuchadnezzar is a military genius. And the records of Babylon are quite complete. Uh, we get a great record of Nebuchadnezzar. He beats the Egypt and kicks them backwards. But as Judah is one of Egypt's provinces, when Nebuchadnezzar beats them in 605 BC, he takes over the province of Judah. They don't get their sovereignty back. So two more invasions are going to come. And there's detailed records and archaeology of each of these. What the chronicler chooses to include is simply where Egypt took away their sovereignty, Nebuchadnezzar starts to take away elements of worship. He starts to take away pieces from the temple. So part of what was so good about Josiah starts to get eaten away. So we have two puppet kings, both of them still in the line of David, neither one worth detailing very much. Just who cares? So then Jehoiachin, his son, reigns in his place. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months and ten days. Uh, the eight-year-old didn't have a lot of 
uh, ability to keep himself there. Um, some manuscripts actually say he was 18 years old. Uh, it's mentioned in Kings. Um, so some people think this might be a detailing area. We talked about this when we did Kings too. It is the one thing that could possibly be a mistake that we've run into as we've gone through the Bible. Legitimately, there's different texts that have 8 or 18 in this verse. Here's the other thing on this, though, if you want to have a perfect word of God. The word 8, like all numbers in the Bible, have a meaning that go with it. And so where we see 3 is a, a, or a finished or complete, we see 6 is the number of man, we see eight, uh, 7 is the number of divine perfection. 8 actually has a meaning, too. The word 8 uh, also means plump or fat. So if you think of it this way, man is six, incomplete and not perfected. Seven is the divine perfection of God, exactly how it's supposed to be. Eight is too much, overkill. So six is how man makes himself. Seven is how God wants man to be. Eight is the gluttony or abundance of just being fat or spoiled. It's just going overkill. So if we eat too little food, we starve, six. We eat just the right amount of food, seven divine perfection. If we eat too much food, that's eight, that's plumpness. That's just fattening ourselves on things that are otherwise a blessing or good. And that is not a bad picture of Jehoiachin. He is a plump year old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon. So the Egyptians take sovereignty. The first attack of Babylon takes articles of worship. The second one, Nebuchadnezzar has so much authority, he can simply summon his governors to his throne room. And so he summons this eight-year-old kid, takes him to Babylon, takes with the costly articles from the house of the Lord. Now they take the expensive stuff and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, his uncle, technically. At this point, they're a vassal of Babylon completely, uh, the second attack raids all worldly, worldly wealth from Israel. There's no battle here. There's just a whimper. The end of Judah is not a struggle. It's not some going out in glory. It's just this sad little squeak of the end of a great empire of what David put in place. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Zedekiah then is Jehoiachin's uncle, still in the line of David, but the line is getting confusing. Right? It's kind of all over the place with relationships. Zedekiah means the Lord is righteous. Ironically, the Lord is going to righteously bring judgment on his reign. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. This is the problem. This is the unforgivable sin. To hear from the mouth of God, to hear the Holy Spirit, and then disregard it and put yourself as more important than that voice, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who made war, made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God himself. So he made promises in that he took a vow under God to get the kingship, but then he refused to pay the taxes that he promised he would pay. Right? So the breaking of his word becomes a big deal in verse 13. 14, moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more. They don't understand the boundaries of God. They're walking all over them. According to all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, 
which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So Judah is reduced to nearly nothing here. Jerusalem, the city still stands, but the Negev is gone. The hills are gone. Jeremiah shows these factions that there's infighting amongst the Judeans. Um, when we read, uh, there's 52 chapters of warnings in the book of Jeremiah. And some of those warnings are, boy, you guys, some of you are pro-Egypt. Some of you are pro-Babylon. Some of you are pro-paying taxes. Some of you are anti-paying taxes. But at the end of the day, we're divided. We're not unified under God. And that's the problem. And so the struggle that they have, what's going on as this, the whole thing falls apart is an utter disseminating of different factions of people worried about everything other than God's word. So we go from Josiah to this in a very short amount of time. Just absolutely disintegrates. King Nebuchadnezzar understands and uses Yahweh to deal with Israel. Nebuchadnezzar has more respect for swearing by the Lord than they do. He thinks... If you swear an oath by God, Elohim, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against the turning of the Yahweh, Lord God. So it's interesting how they interchange Yahweh with Elohim here. Nebuchadnezzar respects that if you make an oath by Yahweh, you should keep it. And in this, Nebuchadnezzar is undoubtedly blessed in his rule and his leadership. Babylon rises to be the world power under Nebuchadnezzar does very successful at the beginning of his reign. He too will get prideful against God and God humbles him. Um, but in this case, the sin of the kings of Israel is that they don't humble themselves to God. They don't listen to the prophets. They don't listen to the word of God. And that becomes the problem. This is the lesson of Chronicles. This is what Ezra's priests wanted us to understand. This is the thesis statement coming to a close here. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, a Gentile, doing it the right way and the king of Israel during the wrong way and hardening his heart and stiffening his neck. To stiffen your neck is a reference to a oxen or mule that won't turn when you pull the reins. They won't bend or move when God wants them to bend or move. The hardening of the heart is an image we see throughout the scriptures of just not being tenderhearted, which is what we got for Josiah. Here we get a hardened heart. All the leaders and the priests and the people transgressed, Again, the writers want to point this out and make us note it. It's not just the king. The king represents the heart of the whole country, but it's all the leaders of the priests and the people themselves that transgressed. Judah's not just being judged because the king screwed up. Judah's being judged because God sees that all the people have left in this direction. So in the first of Babylon and the second attack of Babylon, they take away people and they haul them off to Babylon. Most of those people forget Yahweh. But some of them don't. And this is, I think, kind of the hope of Chronicles because these people coming out of Babylon 70 years later, they recognize some of the most noble, awesome, godly characters that we're going to see in the Bible, they happen in Babylon during the 70 years under Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We wouldn't have these stories if God didn't take the faithful people and haul them off to Babylon. There's still Jews left in the land, by the way. We should note that. It's an important thing for prophecy. But they're not necessarily following the Lord, and they're definitely not the ruling class. These are the workers, the manual laborers. They're left because you might as well get crops so that you get taxes. Both Egypt and Babylon had that kind of a policy. And both Egypt and Babylon don't have a problem with them worshiping the Lord. It's only later in life that Nebuchadnezzar has an issue and says, no, 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 no I want you to worship me. 
makes a big statue. He says, bow down to it. And this becomes part of the problem. And this is where God starts to step in and do great miracles, not in Jerusalem, but over in Babylon. So God moves with them. He's not limited to a house. He's not stuck in a temple. So those that are standing for Yahweh at this time are off in Babylon because they've been told to submit. They've been told to go by the prophets. So anybody who's still in the land, a lot like Assyria, anybody that was still in the northern kingdom was there because they were defying the call of Hezekiah to come and join him in the southern kingdom. And the same thing's kind of true here. The only people that are going to experience the wrath are people that refused to submit and go to Babylon when they were told. So that said, God leaves behind a good guy. He leaves behind Jeremiah. He says, you don't get to go to Babylon. You're going to serve me, but you're going to stay here in Israel. He's, he's the exception. And there's, a, there's one other exception too. Um, we'll get to that. Um, but they get to stay and continue to talk to the people of God that want. So even the people that stay in the land have somebody they can go to if they want to follow the Lord. So here's the fall of Jerusalem, verse 15. The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. It's very important to the writers for us to get this. God's compassion is definitive of God. It, and he actually sends warnings for sin. But notice here that, that he actually gets up early. That's a personification of God. He, God doesn't wake up in the morning. But the idea of rising early, biblically, has always been an excitedness or a passion to do something. Right? When the kings rise early in the morning, it's because they're excited to do what they got in front of them that day. God's looking for, he's, he's passionate about and he's looking for reasons to hold back his wrath. Give me some reason not to bring the wrath about. Right? Until there was no remedy, until he sees no other option, God is desiring for people to come into him and come into the, the joy of the Lord. So the word compassion here that gets used so powerfully, it's biblical compassion. The world wants to tell us that compassion is to be tolerant of everything. That's not the kind of compassion the Bible talks about. The Bible, the, what the God talks about is the compassion is to send warnings to people that are headed off a cliff. That's compassion. And to, to, as we see people that are, that are heading towards a life of sin that's going to beat them and destroy them, not bringing a warning to them, not telling them what God says about that is actually a, a, the opposite of compassion. If you love the person, you should be humble and warn that person. Tell them what's coming. God waits as long as he can until he just sees no alternative. Therefore, verse 17, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak, and he gave them all into his hand. The Lord simply lifts his hand and the evil of this world just goes at it. And isn't it interesting that when people attack the Jews, they go after the aged and the weak? Men and women, there's no, dis it's all Jews must be killed. There's something evil about what happens when God s removes his protection from his people. Um, it, it's odd that any army or any soldiers would target women and children or the aged. It's really, in, in world history, that's not a normal thing. And the writers point that out in verse 17. They go after the weak, the aged. Like, these aren't threats. Little old lady down the street is not going to come back and make war on you. 
right? So for soldiers to go after these folks, it just seems odd. It seems really destructive and evil. And God says, you guys, you don't want me? You can deal with these people yourself. And, and that wrath just pours out. And all the articles. Now, so at first it was some of the articles, then it was all the expensive articles. In verse 18, it's everything. All the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Babylon becomes the richest city in the world. And the, the wealth that's accumulated by Babylon is really uh, one of the great impressive parts about the civilization. I mean, they started saying, you know, the, they started doing construction projects that were massive. Um, and are, some of them are still around today in, in archaeological record. Then they burned the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, destroyed all the precious possessions. Verse 19 is a list of what they work on when they come back from Babylon. Uh, honestly, this is what got destroyed. This is what Ezra and Nehemiah start to rebuild. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Uh, it, it, Persia, it's interesting they mention this because the transition from Babylon to Persia actually happens while they're there. So the third invasion is final. They haul off everything that's left. The only people left in the land are Jeremiah, Gedaliah, and poor people. That's all that gets left. Anyone with any kind of trade skill. So when I say poor people, I mean people that really have nothing to offer the economy. Uh, the weak. So God has wrapped up the antediluvian period with Noah, the patriarch period under Abraham, the tabernacle period under Moses, Joshua and the judges. Now the Davidic rule ends with a whimper. And we get this era of, of history of God's plan, everything, all, no escape, the, the language here is absolute. This is the ending of an era. Um, historically speaking, this is a huge hinge point. Verse 19 is what was taken. It's also a list of what they're going to rebuild when they come back. And everybody getting taken off to become servants. Well, this is what God wanted from them in the first place, to learn how to humble themselves and to learn how to serve. And if you can't serve God, you're going to serve somebody. And this becomes kind of, the, again, a very consistent narrative in the Bible. 539 B.C., the Persians come to power. Persia comes from Iran. They swoop down into what's Iraq today. Uh, and Iraq becomes, they, they conquer the capital. Um, God calls this 200 years prior. Um, so it's all prophetically. Um, Isaiah 44 describes what's going to happen 200 years before it happens. Because God has a plan. They're going to go off to Babylon. They're going to suffer. They're going to serve. They're going to learn humility. They're going to learn what it's like to not have their own country again. And then with the snap of a finger, God's going to give them their country back. So he names Cyrus. He names the name of the Persian leader that will conquer Babylon. They're going to conquer Babylon by drying up the river, or redirecting the river. So there's no water going through the city anymore. And then they, they dry up the river so much that they simply march the army under the gate that was the water gate. So the gate goes kind of down into the water, but if there's no water, they literally could just walk down into the trench and go right into the city. And that's all predicted in Isaiah. It's all explained that that's what's going to happen. Um, so Zedekiah becomes a captive king for 10 years. Uh, and the line of David is alive, but doesn't have sovereignty. And, and for God, that's fine. He doesn't need Israel to have its own sovereignty for him to keep his promises. 
because it was never in the promises. In fact, the promises of God is you're going to have sovereignty as long as you obey me and serve my commandments. If you choose not to, you will lose your sovereignty. So this is exactly what happens to him, exactly as it was promised. And that's what the writers want us to know. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath. To fulfill, 70 years. They're told exactly how long they're going to be in Babylon. And I think God gives prophecy to give us hope. The reason of prophecy isn't to be terrified of God's wrath. It's to know that there's a limit to God's wrath and that God's wrath will stop. Um, the writers assume we've read Jeremiah, but we haven't read Jeremiah yet. But we will. We'll get to Jeremiah. Uh, it has many, many warnings about all of this. Um, and at the end of Chronicles, though, we get this little piece of like, God knew what he was doing here. And that's a message of hope for people at the end of 70 years saying, hey, come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. The sad part is after 70 years, most of the Jews stay in Babylon. They don't go back to Jerusalem. It's only a remnant that listens to what this book says and they come back to Jerusalem. And it's God anointing, blessing and doing miracles in Jerusalem again till we know that that was the will of God which is why Chronicles gets put into the Bible. But the, this is a, a sales pitch to come and help rebuild the city because God's promises haven't gone anywhere. He was just going to kick them out so that the land could keep its Sabbath. What does that mean? In the law, they're supposed to farm for six years to serve man. Then on the seventh year, they're supposed to leave it fallow and give it up and trust that the Lord will give them double crops in year six. And that they will always be, they'll have enough even if they rest every seven years. So as they've gone and we see the length of the, the kings from David all the way to now, they've missed 70 Sabbath years. And so God's going to reclaim those years. So the people can be moved and, and whatever, but God told them to give the land rest every seven years. They didn't do it. So God's going to make sure it gets done. He's going to, and that's why it says to fulfill 70 total years. So Ezra's priests are gathering this chronicle. They have a heavenly view of Jodah and it's now been 70 years and Cyrus comes to reign. They read all of this in the word. It's exactly as God promised it should be. And this is where we get our faith. We understand in the Old Testament, God always keeps his promises to the letter. Leviticus 26, 34. Then the land shall enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it, it lieth desolate, and you, you, and you are in your enemy's land, even though the land rest and enjoy your Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. If you can't give the land its Sabbaths, I'll let the enemy give the land the Sabbaths. And that's exactly what God does. God said this was the consequence. This is the consequence. This is frankly good parenting. When you parent, you don't just react to your kids and yell and scream at them. If they do something wrong, you say, what you just did was wrong. Now that you know it's wrong, I'm going to hold you accountable. If you choose to do that again, here's what will happen. And if kids see that when they then follow through and do that, that their parents carry through on what they say they're going to carry through on, then you know that there's a security in knowing where the boundary is. When parents say, if you do this, I'm going to lock you up for two months, and then they get locked up for a day, there's no boundaries. And it's bad parenting. And kids learn, that's just an exaggeration. My parents won't really do what they say they're going to do. But the Bible teaches us something very different about God. God does exactly what he says he's going to do. 
So when he says he's going to return and all the earth will be held to judgment and everyone will be accountable before the throne of grace, and the only thing that saves us is if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus as our Savior, God will keep his word exactly as he says he will. Any church that denies wrath or doesn't teach of hell is simply not teaching what the Bible says. And it's a dangerous, false teaching. Um, God will keep his word. We learn that. There are consequences to sin. God does not tolerate forever, but he does delay until he can see no other remedy for humanity. And he'll wait before he comes a second time and he, until he sees just no other remedy that his people are talking to 100% hard-hearted people that won't turn back to God. But as long as when we share the gospel, there's somebody with a tender heart to hear it, he's going to delay his coming. He's going to wait until there's no other remedy. And he sent us to be that remedy. And if we don't do our job, we're accountable to that. But he's going to keep his word exactly as he says. Verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord, Yahweh himself, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord, Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord's talking to a Gentile here. It's, it's amazing to me how the Pharisees thought that God only dealt with Jews, right? How do you read this? You have to have not read this or taken it very seriously. But he, the Lord stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing, saying... Um, again, God explains everything clearly. Jeremiah 29, this is the reference to the Jeremiah. For this says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and I will perform my good work towards you in causing you to return to this place. How do you get any clearer? Right? It, it's Again, this isn't obscure, weird prophecy. This is God saying, after 70 years are accomplished at Babylon, I'm going to show up and be active. And then this verse the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he makes a proclamation. And he's going to affect or make Israel a nation instantly again, or a, 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 a semi-sovereign division of Persia is what it's going to look like. So the Cyrus Cylinder explains this. It says he put it in writing. Uh, we actually have that writing. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder, where he makes this proclamation that the Jews will move back to Jerusalem and rebuild their home city. And we end on this turning point. Again, uh, this is uh, the end of Chronicles sets us up for Ezra and Nehemiah. There's this big kind of gap in the histories of the 70 years lost to Babylon. But we see those through Esther, Daniel, um, Isaiah. We see stories from that time, but we don't have this continuous history because Israel doesn't have any sort of self-control on this. They've lost that. So we end on this turning point. We end at the era. And the era begins with a proclamation. The end of one thing is the beginning of the next. Jesus didn't start the church age. Or he didn't end the Mosaic priesthood before he started the church age. And the Pharisees even go to him and say, where's this kingdom of God you're talking about? And Jesus says, it's right here in the midst of you. That's the kingdom. I've already started it. So the same thing's true at the end of Chronicles. He does not end the era of kings without proclaiming the next part. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Here's what he wrote. All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. Yahweh, Elohim, has spoken to me. And he's proclaiming the Jewish God. I uh, wish the kings of Ju Judah could have done that. And he's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Who is among you all of all his people? 
May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Cyrus makes an invitation to all the Jews. Any one of you that want to go serve your God, go serve your God. This is the opposite of what Pharaoh did. Remember, this caused the exodus when Pharaoh like didn't allow them to do this. Cyrus is actually having to tell the Jews, go and set up and do your worship because I want to be good with Yahweh. And this is historically what we know about Cyrus. He was actually extremely permissive of other people's religions in the Persian Empire. He allowed people and encouraged people to practice their religion as long as they paid their taxes. This is where Rome got the practice from. Rome learned from Persia and said, hmm, that's the way to run a world-conquering empire. Let the people do their thing as long as they pay their taxes. So the Lord God inspires this and actually teaches Cyrus this. I would like to think this is where that policy came from. This is what made the peace of Rome for 800 years was something that was inspired by Persia, which was inspired by Yahweh himself. How to run an empire that doesn't just slaughter people all the time. So the barbaric ancient world changes on this command. What goes forward from here are empires that try to reign through building things for people. Like Alexander the Great takes over, he builds arenas, ceremonies, uh, banking systems, agricultural systems, silos, storage places, libraries. So we see the Western world turn through Persia, Greece, and Rome on this command to Cyrus to let people worship as they please. Freedom of religion comes into human history. It hasn't been here before. So this acknowledgement is interesting in that he, maybe Cyrus doesn't follow Yahweh, but he at least acknowledges in writing the honor and the authority of Yahweh. So again, we don't know where his heart is. We can't judge that, but we can see what he did in his actions. And his actions are pretty solid. The fact that he's claiming that Yahweh commanded him in the same way that Josiah shouldn't have doubted that Egypt was commanding them. Like if, if Judah's not going to obey God, God's going to still get the job done. So in 3520, Josiah should have paid attention when the Egyptian king said, hey, I'm listening to your God in doing this. Leave me alone. Let me do my thing. It's amazing. Cyrus here says the same thing, and God's continuing to work through Gentile leaders. What's amazing is when the people of God don't do their job, God's still active. And I want to tell you one story from this last week. On the 20th in CBN News, in one night, so they have these supply camps in Palestine all around the Gaza Strip. In one night, 200 Palestinians reported to the supply camps asking to have them tell about Jesus. And the reason they gave is that all 200 of them on the same night said that Jesus came to them in a dream and told them to go to the supply camp and hear more about Jesus. And we're seeing massive conversions happening as people are attacking Judah that's a secular country right now. Again, in total in these camps, they claim to have seen over 2,000 Palestinians. Again, there's millions of people there. But there is a remnant coming out of nothing. God's just birthing a Christian population that's, you know, the church in, in Gaza Strip is underground, but there's Christians in Gaza Strip. We, and, and we, you know, by two, three connections, we actually have connections with those Christians. And they're in hiding because they don't, the Hamas won't let them practice. But they are growing in, in, in rapid form because Jesus himself is showing up in dreams. One of the prophecies of the end times is that old men would dream dreams and young men would see visions or one of the other might be flipped. I don't know. But God said he would start coming to people in their dreams and he's doing it. 
and we're getting documentation of it. If you don't listen to the word and the prophets, what will you listen to? So he says, go and build him a house. The him there is, should be capitalized. He's actually referring to Yahweh. Go build Yahweh a house. So the, the return mission is the same mission that David was given and Solomon was given. Only we're not in the era of kings anymore. It's going to be a temple when Messiah shows up. It has to be rebuilt. This rebuilt and expanded temple, Herod's going to expand it. The second temple becomes the place where Messiah himself shows up because God promised he himself will be a sacrifice at the temple. And he's going to keep that promise whether or not the era of kings did the job. But they didn't do the job. And so Cyrus calls out, and I love this phrase. It's a nice way to end the Chronicles. Who is among you of all his people? Of all the Jews, who among you will actually serve him? And those that serve God are not necessarily those that were born Jewish. It's the people that choose to go. Who's going to serve? Who's going to pick up their life and follow Jesus? Who's going to actually go after Jesus? And only a few of them go back, but Ezra and Nehemiah, they build something new there. They rebuild the temple of God, and it's only a remnant that does it. I think God loves his odds that there's a single proclamation at the end of the book, and it just says, who is among you of all his people? Of all the Jewish people, which of you are actually going to serve? And he calls them out. There's a hope at the end of Chronicles, despite this downward trend of the kings. There's a glorious hope, and I think God loves the odds. A small little remnant of people called out of Babylon to go do God's work. He loves this. Historically, God works with remnants. He doesn't work with empires. And you say, where's the kingdom of God? At this period in history, the kingdom of God is whoever answered the call of Cyrus and was going to go back to the land and do the work. And it didn't matter if they're masons. We're going to see later. It, you know, it, there was a place for everybody to do this work. There were people that were guards. There were people making food. There were people doing the priesthood work and getting that up and running again. They all come back together to do God's work at the call of a Gentile emperor. Who amongst the Jews is going to stand up? And God makes that some, same call to us. Of all the earth, he seeks the earth looking for righteous people that will serve him. Who's going to follow the call? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for getting us through three chapters tonight. A big night, a lot to study and a lot to think about. Lord, bless our conversation. May we just draw closer to you in it. Um, may we have questions that, that continue to keep us thinking and, and searching about it. Bless that time. Bless the time as we pray tonight. Um, but Lord, may this word sit with us. And we just we, There's so much to learn from Josiah, um, from even these the kings that just are kind of squander their inheritance and lord we know that if we don't worship you you'll call the stones to cry out but you will be worshiped so lord i just pray you don't need to do that for the rest of our days and as long as we're alive and on this earth there will at least be the people in this room that will worship you the people listening to this teaching we will stand we'll go with you and we'll be there and lord we'll give you the rest of our days we're not perfect like like any of these kings but we want to die and be buried with our fathers and our mothers we want to be with our people and come to abraham's bosom be on that side of the gulf because we've put our trust in jesus christ and we put our trust in jesus christ because that's the covenant that's what you've given us and we know from the old testament that when you give a covenant you keep it so lord we know that your promises will stand so we stand with you you don't stand alone and you don't, you're not looking at an earth in which there's no hope left. Um, there is a remnant. There is a remedy. 
And Lord, we're here to proclaim your glory and your, your, your majesty and your authority in this earth. So help us as we go forth this week to do exactly that and elevate your name and the honor of your name amongst everyone we know. In Jesus' name we pray. 